who drives like Jesus would drive. And in my situation, you want the guy who's dating your daughter to act like Jesus. Because if he doesn't, he will meet Jesus. We even have, thank you, we even have a term that used to be popular in the 90s, what would Jesus do? A mother was preparing pancakes for her sons, Kevin 5 and Ryan 3. The boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake. The mother saw the opportunity for a moral lesson. If Jesus was sitting here, she said, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Kevin, at age five, turned to his younger brother and said, okay, Ryan, today you be Jesus. <laughs> Everyone wants someone else to act like Jesus. But how do you act like Jesus? I want to demonstrate this today, how to act like Jesus. By the way, my bag is Batman, if you didn't realize that. I'd like to demonstrate how the church tries to make you act like Jesus. Let's pretend for a moment that you are this glove. You are this glove. Some of you, your personality, that's not for Anyway, you are this glove. And in trying to get you to act like Jesus, the, the church will uh, encourage you. This is your best life now. You are more than a conqueror. You can do everything. You're, you're an amazing you know, that doesn't work to get you to act like Jesus. And so then the, the church will yell at you. Why can't you be more like Jesus? And get in your face and challenge you. And that doesn't work. And so then the church will try to guilt you. You know, if you really love Jesus, you'd act like him. All your neighbors are acting like Jesus. Why can't you be like him? Why can't you act like other Christians do? And we try to do this, and it doesn't work. In fact, we will even try to tell, we'll tell you a sad story. And that's when my dog. And we'll try to do all these things to get you to act like Jesus, and it doesn't work. In fact, what we'll do is we'll get other of you together, and we'll put you together, and then we'll try to do the same thing with you and yell and encourage you to act like Jesus, and that doesn't work. So we try to get other people that look different color skin than you to act like Jesus. This, I thought this was funny. That reminds me of my house. But anyway, <laughs> we try to get you to act like Jesus, and then that doesn't work. So we try to get other genders. This is a very girly Gentlemen, if you have a glove that looks like this, we need to talk. But uh, you try to get you to act like genders, and then that doesn't work. So we get other age groups, right? Little, and we get you all together. We do the exact same bit. We try to worship together and do all these things with spectacular lights and everything. We yell at you. We encourage you. We do all of this. We, we guilt you. We tell you sad stories of puppies dying and everything. And in the end, you don't act like Jesus. You just sit there and do nothing. You see, just like the glove, the glove is useless. You know where I'm going, right? You've been in church long enough. Is it possible to gain weight in your hand? Yeah. <laughs> the glove is useless until there's a hand in it, right? 
See, once the hand gets in there, the glove really has no option, and the glove just moves with the hand. You see, nothing happens until the glove is filled with something. Here's my marching order today. Anybody dare me to preach an entire message like Michael Jackson? Anybody want to see me move? Get in a time machine, and it still would never happen. But anyway, here's our marching force orders today. Spiritual activity requires spiritual control. You see, technically, what I'm talking about possessing you that allows you to move, it's really not Jesus. What possesses you is the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you know Christ as your personal Savior, when you accepted Jesus, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit. Say amen. amen. You never had to seek it. You never had to do anything about it. It just happened. But if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ after you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, you're supposed to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And the, the reason the Holy Spirit fills you is to enable you to do things you could not do. Our TV preachers have just paganized Jesus and turned the filling of the Holy Spirit into some sort of feeling and emotion that you have. Some way that you could get out of debt by the filling of the Holy Spirit or you could lose weight by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And he turned Jesus into a self-help seminar. And the filling of the Holy Spirit, well, no, the filling of the Holy Spirit is there to enable you to do things that in your flesh, in your physical ability, you would never be able to do. It's the Spirit coming into the glove and moving the glove. But the problem, the problem is this. We have epistemophilia Christians. Epistemophilia Christians. This is good. You didn't know I was this smart that I knew words like this. I don't have to pronounce it, but I know this. Epistemophilia is this. It's the love of knowledge. It's the preoccupation with knowledge. It's the desire just to know things for the sake of knowing things. I want to know more because I just love knowing more. See, some of you have this, you're, maybe you're like me, the Civil War. I love the Civil War. I love World War I. I love World War II. I don't know why I'm so infatuated with war. Uh, but I love just knowledge for the sake of knowledge. And some of you, maybe it's golf, so you can know how to hit your golf swing. You just, you don't even really apply any of it. You just want to know things to know things. And this is the typical American Christian. This is the typical American Christian who thinks they are doing something great for Jesus. You see, we are the most knowledgeable generation about Jesus. You think about that. No other generation has the tools and the resources that we have. We have small groups. We are allowed to meet and openly as churches. We have the radio. There's TV. There's books. There's online. There's some of you right now are following me on your phone. Everybody thinks you're following me, but you're really on Facebook. Stop it. <laughs> but you have so much. Every, listen, every Sunday I have a ritual, a tradition of mine, and I get on my phone as I drive in, as I prepare and get ready. There's certain preachers I listen to from Charles Stanley or Agent Rogers, and I just put that phone right there, and I just listen to their preaching to kind of get me going on the day and everything. We have so much knowledge, but the problem is this. We have knowledge for the sake of knowledge. We are the most knowledgeable-based generation, but you know what we also are? We are the least achieving generation. We are the least achieving generation. We have all this knowledge, but what are you doing with it? Who are you being Jesus to? Who is 
the Holy Spirit moving in your life. Listen, I, I, some of you will take me up on this, but okay. I would rather you be a bunch of biblically almost illiterate soul winners. People who know nothing but John 3.16, who have no idea about the rapture and the end times or God's view of this or dispensationalism or anything else or creation. I would rather you be borderline functionally idiots who love people, who win people to Jesus Christ than a group of scholars who have borderline doctorate degrees and do nothing with it. Amen. We have turned Jesus into knowledge for the sake of of knowledge. I would rather apologize for you because you are so overwhelmed and you are so ignorant on things that you go out and do things for Jesus. And I have phone calls and people are telling me the stupid, ridiculous things you did, but you did it with the right attitude because you wanted to help somebody for Jesus than have to try to push you and prod you and yell at you and guilt you and encourage you to serve our Lord and Savior. I know so much, but you do so little. Listen, uh, Pastor Ken has been organizing this, and we're going to be doing this in April as an opportunity. Um, is, is it a missions opportunity or anything like this? It's just in April 29th, Pastor Ken called a whole bunch of groups, and I said, let's find something that we could do for our community that just helps our community. And so he contacted the senior citizen group. We put him in contact with another group. They're calling it Clarkston Community Impact Weekend. And so he signed our church up for it. He said, how many should I sign up for it? I said, 110. <laughs> he looked at me like, really? I said, 20. <laughs> Sunday, April 29th at 1 o'clock, they're even going to feed us. Uh, from 1 to 3, we're going to go out. And uh, in our community in Clarkston, which is Independence Township, you know what I'm saying, uh, there's some senior citizens who have signed up, and we're going to go out and help clean up their yards. And you say, well, why are we doing that? Because we are going to be somebody. We are going to be Jesus to somebody. Amen. We're going to do something for him and uh, make a small impact. You say, well, that doesn't make a huge difference. How can that change the world? Well, how can you doing nothing change the world? In our march to the greatest event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, let's allow him to take control of our lives. Today, we're going to talk about the most unnatural thing you can do. Today requires the Holy Spirit. If you're going to do what we're going to talk about today, it is totally the Holy Spirit coming in and moving you because it is completely unnatural to forgive. Nothing is more like Jesus than when you forgive. Every relationship has tension. Every relationship has issues. I, sir, if you're sitting there thinking, no, we don't, your wife is probably shaking her head and saying, oh, he's so stupid. Every relationship has tension and has issues. And the most disarming thing you can do is forgive. In Luke chapter 22, we see maybe the biggest mistake in the Bible, and it's Peter. The passage takes place, as all of our passages do in this series, around the crucifixion. But this passage takes place as Jesus is being arrested in the garden. I want to look at Peter's mistakes first. Number one, 
in misdirected passion. Look at Luke 22, verse 49. And when they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. John 18, 10, if you like to put notes in your Bible, tells us that it was Peter that did this. Luke also mentions the servant's name is Malchus. He's probably using sort of a long knife, sort of something he would use to prepare the Passover lamb, something he would cut out. So it's not like a necessarily a King Arthur's type sword that might be going through your mind, but more of a small thing. And you see somewhat the incompetence of Peter because he probably wasn't aiming for his ear, he's probably aiming for his head, and he missed. Now see, some of you can relate to misdirected passion because you've lost your temper over something at the time you thought was so important. And later you said something, and later you thought about it, and you regretted it. Jesus is probably looking at Peter like every parent looks at their child. What are you doing? What, what is your end going on in your thought process? I know that he's probably looking at him like every father does, as he has to fix a problem that one of his child does. I didn't even want this. These are all her ideas. I can't have her ideas. What is wrong with you? You must get this from your mother's side, right? And I'm sure there's every wife can relate because you've watched your husband behave like an idiot, and you're thinking, wait until I get you home. <laughs> Misdirected passion. Number two. Peter's mistake was a distant relationship. Look at this, verse 54. Then took they him and led him and brought him unto the high priest's house. And look what this, this is the part about Peter. Look what he does. And Peter afoul afar off. Peter is allowing something to come between him and Jesus. We have relationships deteriorate. Why? Because we put something between us and that other person that really isn't as important. It could be something as noble as work. I have to feed my family. I have to make more money. You know how much they spend. These kids eat a lot of food. Where do they put it all? They eat so much and they're so rich. Anyway. <laughs> venting, venting. Anyway. You have to do it. could be something noble like work. Or it could be something trivial like your golf game. And you put something between you and that relationship. Peter is putting distance between him and Jesus. Number three, harmful associations. Verse 55. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down amongst them. Who you run with is who you are. You're good with missing God's people. And actually, you're not really comfortable in church. Well, the conclusion is obvious. If you feel more at home in a Tigers game, if you feel more at home in a bar than you do at church, it's because you are one of those people. The conclusion is obvious if you're not comfortable with God's people who praise his name. The conclusion is that, well, maybe you're not one of God's people. In the 11 o'clock, I'm going to hammer this point home with our students. Um, this is who you are. If you're at the lunchroom table in high school, right, and you look around and everybody's a nerd, you're probably going to be somebody's boss in the future. Right? <laughs> if you look around and everybody's a jock, you're probably a jock. If you look around at the lunchroom table and everybody gets high, right, you probably know some of the lines to Cheech and Chong. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if you're uncomfortable with Christians, it's because 
you're not. Number four, and lastly, painful words. Words don't happen accidentally. You lose your temper. I lost my temper and I said that, sweetheart. I didn't really mean that. No, you really meant it. You've been thinking that over in your mind. It is your temper, like alcohol, that lowered your inhibitions and what you've been really holding back finally came out. Watch Peter's words. They bring nothing but pain. I'm going to read this entire part because it's just so heartbreaking. Look at verse 56. But a certain maid, probably a young girl under the age of 12, beheld him, this is Peter, as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, this man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, thou art also of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And about the space of one hour, another confidently affirmed, saying, of a truth, this fellow is also with him, <clears throat> for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crowed. In verse 61, and the Lord turned. It's been speculated that he was being taken through the courtyard, going to another area, to another room, probably beaten, probably blood on his face, eyes beginning to swell up. And it's just kind of one of those amazing moments. I call it Hollywood, but it's really Jesus' moment where Peter denies him for the third time. And Jesus just happens to be going through the courtyard and through a crowded area. Jesus, Peter denies him. And he looks over and he sees Jesus' eyes. Verse 62. Verse 61, and the Lord looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord. And he said unto him before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. thrice. In verse 62, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now go back again, Mark, for us. <coughs> go back again. No, no, go back the other way. There you go. The other direction. The other direction. Keep going. There you go. This, this is a great uh, description of a backslider slider. This is a great description of how to backslide in your relationship with Jesus. Uh, you get the misdirected passion, you think something else is more important than Jesus. Uh, you start to follow Jesus with distance, right? Uh, work, golf, sports become more important, everything. Uh, you start hanging out with the wrong crowd and it becomes easier to miss church and not hang out and be like Jesus. And lastly, there's probably painful words. And you know what? This is probably a decent pattern for every relationship that's screwed up. It's a good pattern for your marriage. And there's probably all four of these, or at least a few of these, if you're thinking about somebody who's wronged you, if you're thinking about a relationship that's deteriorated, somebody you don't talk to anymore, somebody that when they come in the family reunion, you go out the other door because you don't want to see them. If you're talking about somebody you need to forgive, there's probably a good pattern that fits into this uh, little anachronism that I've created here. Just misdirected passion. Distant relationship, harmful association, and always oh, at number four, the big one, painful words that were said. So, what will Jesus do? How will Jesus behave? Well, if you're taking notes, number one, Peter, Jesus responds to Peter with inclusive forgiveness. Turn over to Mark 16. Mark 16 is where we need notes. Mark 16. Jesus responds to Peter with inclusive forgiveness. If you're going to let Jesus, the Holy Spirit, exact technically, take control 
and occupy your glove and move you the way Jesus moves, then you need to learn to forgive the way Jesus forgives. In Mark 16, the ladies on the first resurrection Sunday go to the tomb. The tomb is empty. Say amen. amen. But there's an angel that meets them there. And the angel says this, speaking for Jesus. And Mark 16, 7 says this, very simple. And But go your way. Tell his disciples. Anybody else? And Peter. And he goeth before you unto Galilee. There you shall see him. And he said unto you. He includes Peter on purpose. He makes a special mention. This is not to elevate Peter above because, as you know, the Apostle Paul will probably be the greatest, I mean, probably he is the greatest Apostle of the New Testament. Peter's not even the head of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem in the first century. No, it's not to elevate Peter above the group, but it's to include Peter because Peter, well, Peter at this time, everybody had some guilt and everybody had some issues. But they had all just ran away from Jesus. Peter had made these bold declarations. And Peter, well, other gospels tell us that Peter actually cursed and used probably profanity when he denied Jesus. And then he saw him face to face. Listen, when you make a big mistake, this is what you usually do. When you make a big mistake, you feel shame, you feel remorse, you feel self-doubt. Listen, last week as I talked about the mistakes we make with our bodies, you probably felt one of these three things. Because perfectly honest with you, nobody ever does the subject of what we do with our bodies perfectly. Everybody makes some mistake, and it could be on a physical level, a physical intimacy, you, you ran around before you got married. It, it could be the fact that you can't say no to chocolate or a habit that you have. Everybody in here last week when I was preaching on it, and by the way, I didn't even listen to myself preach because I didn't want to feel one of these three things. But as I preached about talking about what you do with your body, you probably felt some level of shame or some level of remorse or possibly even some level of self-doubt. But what Jesus offers this is total and complete, inclusive forgiveness. That's what salvation was. You could do nothing about your condition. You could do nothing about not even these Issues. You could do nothing about your sin issue. And he died on the cross, not to save half of your sin or 99.9% .9 of your sin. He died on the cross to save all of your sin. In fact, he didn't technically die for your sin. He died because you are a sinner. A complete, inclusive level of forgiveness. He doesn't hold back a little bit so that he can bring it up at a later time when you screw up again and go, Oh, do you remember what you did on July 16th, 1952? says in the sea of forgetfulness and throws it as far as the east is to the west because Jesus when he forgives it's completely inclusive of all. Amen. Now let me give you some practical advice on forgiveness. Practical advice. <clears throat> Number one it does not require acknowledgement. I'll forgive when the other person asks me to. That is one of the most pagan things you have probably ever said. Unless you have said in your life hey Let's sacrifice a virgin and worship a goat, right? Unless you've said that, saying, I'll forgive when they ask me to forgive them. That is the most pagan thing you have ever said in your life. 
The other person may never say thank you. They may never acknowledge it at all. You're commanded. You're required. If Jesus is in your glove, to forgive. Number two, it should be personal if possible. If that person's dead, go to a graveside. If it doesn't hurt to yell at a grave, it's not going to hurt anybody's feelings. Um, if that person is violent, you see, Pastor Stephen, every time I talk about forgiveness, somebody in here has a horrific story where maybe a parent or an ex-husband or somebody was physically abused and beat, and God, forgive me, and I, I don't mean to hurt her feelings, but sometimes there's even sexual abuse. And use an empty chair. Don't allow that person to abuse you or do that. If possible, forgive them face-to-face -face if you can. Number three, it is spiritual. You are never more like Jesus than when you forgive somebody. The hand goes in the glove. Listen, if you know somebody who's maybe not a believer and say, you know, if I just saw a miracle of God, I would believe in Jesus. Oh, you want a miracle? Here's a miracle. My mother-in-law did this, this, and this to me. She did this, she drove a wedge. She's now my ex-mother-in-law. Because of her, we're no longer married. This happened, this happened, this happened. But you want to know what the miracle is? I went to see her in the hospital, and I totally forgave her. And after she got out of the hospital, I brought food to her, I took care of her. I loved her like Jesus would love her. You're looking for a miracle? Me and my ex-mother-in-law relationship. That's a miracle. John 21, after the resurrection, Jesus is communicating with Peter. Now, if you've been in church long enough, you know exactly what this passage is. In John 21, we begin at verse 15. You'll know that he's talking about feeding his sheep and feeding his lambs. And you also know, if you've been in church long enough, you know that he's using two different words for love, right? But Jesus is using the word agape for love, which is a total, complete love, like the love of a father. And he'll task Peter, do you love me? And Peter doesn't respond with agape, right? He responds with philo, where we get our city of Philadelphia, brother love. Philo is like a brotherly love. It's a friendship love. And Jesus keeps saying to him, agape me, and Peter comes back with philo you. Agape me, and then finally the third time, Jesus comes back with philo. And listen, if you're here today... And your focus is on just those Greek words. And what exactly does it mean that Jesus came down to Peter's level? What is exactly does it mean, feed my sheep versus feed my lambs? How does that equate? You are an episcopalia Christian. You are missing the point. You have missed the forest because you are focusing not on a tree, but on one branch. The focus and the point of this entire passage is that there is a hurt an embarrassed man who Jesus is trying to love. And if your goal and focus is on giving a 20-minute dissertation on the difference between the two different love words, or what feed my sheep versus feed my lamb means, I don't really care about that. I only care about feeding me. You have missed everything. And you've missed a hurt and wounded man who Jesus is trying to love. I'm glad you know so much about the Bible. 
I'm glad you knew exactly, if you've been to church long enough, I knew you knew where my glove illustration was going. You know, as soon as I took it out, I go, I know what he's going to do. At some point, stop making this academic and start making it life-changing. Look at verse 15. I'm just going to hit the highlights. Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me agape more than these? Peter's response, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And his response, this is Peter's, feed my lambs. Verse 16, Simon, Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me agape thee? Peter responds, with thou love knowest that I love thee. And his response is, feed my sheep. Again, in verse 17, he says it again, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou? And Jesus comes down with be love. Lovest thou me? And Peter gets upset. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus' response to him is, feed my sheep. But the words I want to focus on is in verse 19, and he says this, and he said unto him, follow me. Peter can't imagine that Jesus ever forgave him. Why? Because Peter probably would never forgive Jesus if he did this to him. But not only is he carrying around all this guilt and all these shame and all this self-doubt, and he's probably thinking, he will never use me again. Why? Because human nature says, don't ever trust anybody, don't ever use anybody, <clears throat> never let anybody forget what they've done to you. If they've hurt you, come back, right? The, the old mob movie saying, they put one of ours in the hospital, we put two of theirs in the morgue, right? You come back full force. Because that's what Peter's thinking. Jesus is going to treat me this way because that's how Peter treated other people. But instead, Jesus has forgiven him. Instead, what Jesus is doing right there, he is recommissioning him again. Yeah. Let me give you some practical advice on restoration. <clears throat> Number one, it's required for the church. Hey, church, we are required to restore our brothers and sisters who fall. What usually happens, they just even go to another church. What usually happens, the pastor resigns and just starts selling insurance. What usually happens is we just stop talking to them and we unfriend them on Facebook. That's what usually happens. You know what we're supposed to do? When one of our young people makes a mistake, you know what we're supposed to do? Kick them. Make them feel really bad. Make them feel horrible. You know what? They probably already feel horrible about it. What we're supposed to do is restore them. It is not an option for the church to not restore. Amen? Amen. But it is optional, number two, for believers. Do not bring back people who are physically abusive just to turn around and abuse your kids. You forgive them, but don't bring them back and let them be your dad again. Forgive them, but don't bring them back and let them be a friend again. Especially, what do I do with somebody who sexually abused it. You let Jesus take over and you forgive him. But you are not required to bring that person back in your life. Parents, lean in. Parents, you are probably not helping but enabling your adult children in their behavior. You have an addict, and you keep giving them money. But pastor, they'll be homeless. Then let them be homeless because eventually they need to meet the consequences of their actions. And they will never change. The reality, can you, can you talk gently? The reality, you're just really ministering to your own guilt of the situation. Some people need to experience tough love. 
If they live in your home and don't come to your church, they move out Monday. If they live in your home and don't do what you say, you turn their cell phone off. If they live in your home and don't do what you say, you have a sheriff meet you in the basement and arrest them for smoking weed in your basement, and they're out of your house. This is your home. This is your money. My love is unconditional, but my money comes with strings attached to it. I tell my son, I tell my children this all the time. You can leave when you're 18 and do whatever you want. But the phone, the clothes, the cars, they stay here. Good luck. You say, well, Pastor Steve, I could never do that. And that's why they've never gone to rehab. That's why he never got a job. You are trying to restore people who should not be restored. That was all three. Number three, it is by spiritual Galatians 6.1, so tiny, right? It looks so big on my computer screen when I do this. But Galatians 6.1, this is why this doesn't happen. This is why churches don't restore. This is why people don't forgive, right? Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, right? He did something bad. Uh, he made a big mistake. Ye which are spiritual, restore. You know what that is? You know what that verse right there is saying? Those of you that are spiritual, it's talking about those of you who have the Holy Spirit inside of you moving and using you and moving you. And the reason this doesn't happen, the reason we don't see more restoration, the reason we don't see more people coming forward and repenting because they completely trust their church, they completely trust their pastor, they completely trust their deacons, they completely trust their, their Sunday school teacher, the reason we don't see more people doing this is maybe because we don't have enough spiritual-led people who forgive first and then restore. Pastor Steve, I just want to act like Jesus. Well, what would Jesus do with your mom? Jesus would forgive. And when possible, when possible, Jesus would restore. Here's the example. I don't believe that. Well, Luke 23, 34 Jesus on the cross as he's dying and he's been wrongfully executed for our sins. Father, forgive them. I mean, can I be honest with you? This morning I had to go over and get some stuff at CVS because it says it opens at 8 o'clock. And this lady was in front of me and the, the checkout person. We were like the first ones, but there was already a guy. And they, what should have been five minutes turned into 20 minutes. And I am still mad at that lady. I'm like, I gotta get back over there and open up the church. People are gonna be knocking on the door. Jesus said, forgive. And lastly, in Matthew 16, 6, 12, and forgive us our debts. This is the Lord's Prayer. As we forgive our debts. This requires something supernatural. Super spiritual. This requires the Holy Spirit. I'm going to close today with this little video on the subject of forgiveness. Are you ready?
rejoice when good things happen to them. Because when their name comes up, there's not this pit in your stomach of overwhelming misery and ugly hate that you're trying to suppress. How can I do that, Pastor? You don't understand. You have no idea. You're completely right. I don't problem. But when Jesus finally comes in and takes control, he moves. And he does things. 